In the year 2000, when the Iraqi war was just beginning, we learned a new phrase that has become commonplace in vocabulary today, and that phrase is shock and awe. Now, that phrase was at least seven years old at the time because James Wade wrote a doctrine for military to use called Shock and Awe in a 175-page book. full very, very rapidly. One of the generals in that war, uh, uh, Tommy Franks, said the following in preparation for this war. He said, this will be a campaign unlike any other in history. It'll be a campaign characterized by shock, by surprise, by flexibility, the employment of precise munitions on a scale never before seen and by application of overwhelming force. Wolf Blitzer, one of the CNN announcers, had been in this business for 30 years and he stated that he had never seen anything on the level of what took place on the opening of that Iraqi war. Shock and awe is something that was on the front cover of Newsweek magazine that following week. We're told that the very next day after the initial invasion into Iraq, that there were 29 requests to use that phrase shock and awe for uh, publication and for advertising and using with different products. And since then, we have indeed used that phrase quite a bit, shock and awe. But if we really think about it, God's word is full of shock and awe. For example, the creation. And I hope that you do believe in a literal creation as told in Genesis 1 and 2. Because if you don't, if you've been caught in that foisted lie of evolution, then what would prevent you from not believing anything else in the rest of the book? You see, God on that time when he created the world, there was nothing and he spoke things ex nihilo, out of nothing, into existence. Wouldn't it have been great to have witnessed that? To see animals and plants and lakes and all the things that we enjoy spoken into existence. Indeed, that would have been shock and all. Another example is the worldwide flood. And again, this was not a localized flood. This was something that covered the whole planet. Only eight people made it out alive, and that was only because God had prepared Noah to build this ark that would save those people from that flood. And one of the things that is common, and I think part of it is because of our children's stories, we say that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, that was just a small part of it. The scripture says that everything opened up. We now know that at least three times water exists under the surface of the earth as exists on the earth. That includes all the lakes, all the oceans. There's at least three times that much 
underneath the earth. And the Bible tells us that in order to cover the earth with water, it split open. Amazing. I mean, you need to just think of the gushers. Shock and awe indeed. Or the, the plagues of Egypt, ten of them in a row, frogs and blood in the water, flies. All these things were shock and awe. And we might ask why. Because God wants us to believe in him. In the book of Daniel, a number of events, uh, the, the furnace throwing in three Hebrew men that would not bow before the image. And we're told that God's son came into that furnace and saved them. And it led eventually to King Nebuchadnezzar through another miracle to come to belief in the God of heavens. In the earthly ministry of Christ, he performed miracles. And in a moment, I'm going to read a passage that explains why he did these miracles. But to have been there when he turned the water to wine and he fed the 5,000, or he healed the blind, or he healed the leper, all of these were significant miracles to get people to a place where they would come to belief in Christ. And God's not done. Folks, I hope you realize because of the scriptures, but also because of the events that we see in our world today, we are on the cusp of some significant shock and awe that God is going to perform on this earth in what we call from the book of Revelation seals, trumpets, and bold judgments. Sometimes as a pastor, I'm asked, well, Pastor Randy, do you believe in global warming? And my answer kind of shocks people. Yes. Not now, but then. There's going to be some significant warming up on this planet. Could be very soon. And God has a lot of shock and awe. And if you read in the book of Revelation, especially when it became very hot, it says, and they still did not repent. And that leads us to the question, why does God use shock and awe? Well, in the book of John, we have the following verses in chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I would like to invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of Matthew chapter 27. There are six miracles at Calvary. We're only going to cover the first five, and I feel very confident that Pastor Joseph next week will cover the sixth one, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why were they given? They were given so that we might come to belief that he really is who he says that he is. When Jesus was dying and his lips were eventually silenced from de through death, God the Father spoke in awe-inspiring language through these Calvary miracles, asking that we as well would come to believe. So let's read the text, chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. See if you can identify the five miracles Actually, the sixth one is referenced as well. 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This portion of Scripture opens with a miracle of darkness in the middle of the day. Time sequence-wise, it would be noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. I'm sure you've heard of the statements of Jesus. There's seven of them in, in all. Three of them had been uttered before the darkness, and then there was this darkness in which Jesus did not speak, and then at the very end, he had four additional statements. During this period of darkness, God is speaking to the people that are there witnessing. This is not the first time that darkness has enveloped the earth. We read in uh, the book of Exodus that the ninth plague was a darkness of three days over the land of Egypt. And again, the reason for that darkness was for repentance, for people to come to belief in the true Yahweh. We read several times of instances of darkness coming as a way of speaking to people. This was not a, an eclipse because this was the time of the full moon, and I'm sure that you've observed that we're just a few days away from the full moon, and that's how Easter is determined. It's the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. Now, there'll be a little quiz for that afterwards, and you've got to repeat that. We have an early Easter this year because in just a few days, the moon will be full, and next Sunday is the first Sunday, and we've already, starting today, passed the equinox. It wasn't an eclipse because the moon was its furthest away from the sun. In fact, historical records from Egypt show that they reference this occasion that took place in the land of Israel. Josephus was referencing, he was a Jewish historian, a non-believer, and he was referencing a point 40 years prior to the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in which there was darkness that covered the land. 
Additionally, one of the early church fathers by the name of Tertullian, he said this almost 200 years after the fact. He said, quote, At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun, and the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder is related in your annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. We must ask ourselves, why was there this darkness? There's a little clue that comes from the ninth plague of Egypt. I'd like to reference that at this point. Have you ever been on a, a trip through a cave where they turn out the lights? When I was a kid, about six years of age, in Mammoth Caves in Kentucky, I remember our family going there, and there came a point in which the tour guide said, all right, all parents that have kids, grab your kids' hands. We're going to turn out the lights so that you can experience what total blackness is like. I can still remember that, and I can still remember holding on real tight. That was the only sensory thing I had that let me know that I was safe because, I mean, you couldn't see anything. And it's interesting what the Scripture says about that plague. It says there was a darkness that could be felt. Now, feeling that would be sensory. But I would submit to you that the darkness that was experienced at Calvary was a spiritual darkness. Because, you see, when Jesus cried out what he said, Why have you forsaken me? He was speaking of an abandonment by God of him. And why would he do that? Here is Jesus on the cross. He's the light of the world. John's gospel starts out, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And here the sun is blocked out. What in the world could this mean? I think that this darkness was allowing for us and them to see what was spiritually taking place when Jesus died. You see, there were two others that were being crucified that same day, and there's literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of historical examples of people dying on the cross. So dying on a the cross, there wasn't anything unique about a person dying on a cross because it happened all the time. And part of that was Romans shock and awe so that you straighten up and obey what we have to say. But why would this one person, Jesus, cause the sun not to shine? It was symbolic of God turning his back upon his son. We have this verse and this perspective by the Apostle Paul that I think helps us so much. He says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. The blackness of that hour represents the evilness of our sin laid upon him. And Paul goes on to say, so that or for the purpose that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For those especially the older generation You'll be familiar with the words of Isaac Watts' song, At the Cross. He actually references this first miracle in one of his stanzas when he says, Well might the sun in darkness hide, 
and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. This first miracle is for all there and for all of us as we read it in retrospect to realize that on that day, this miracle represented the darkness of our own sin laid upon the Son of God. This miracle is followed by the separation of the veil. Verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this veil, when we say curtain, when we say veil, we, we think of maybe a shear. And I'll explain that that's not the case at all. This was a huge barrier. It was a barrier for the purpose of allowing only one person once a year to go beyond where the presence of God was at at the mercy seat of God. And it says here in the scripture that it tore from top to bottom. Now in a moment I'll give you the dimensions and you'll understand that it would have been impossible for a human being to have torn that from top to bottom. It was the finger of God. And just like that, it was separated. And suddenly, those that were there were able to see inside what only the high priest could see once every year on the Day of Atonement. And at this particular time, it was still six months away from the Day of Atonement. This curtain, this veil, was significant. It was 30 feet high, 60 feet wide, and historians describe it as the thickness of the palm of a man's hand. Now, that's thicker than anything that we have in our living rooms. It is stated that it took 300 men to hoist and to lift that and to place it into the temple. 300 men. And God, with his finger, separated it and tore it in two. This happened just after 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock is significant because the new shift of priests had just come in for the evening oblation. There were plenty of witnesses. And don't you know, they would have been shocked for the first time, these regular, ordinary priests, to see what only the high priest could see once a year. Again, we must ask, was this just a miracle for miracle's sake, just to shock, just to awe, or was there some significance behind it? Yes, there was. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, we read something very significant that was symbolic when God ripped that curtain in two. He said, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. You see, he tore it and opened it so we can have access unto him. I woke up a little early this morning and so I had opportunity to just kind of sit in the recliner and going through the notes and looking. 
And there was something that just kind of impressed me, and I wrote it down, and I'll share it with you. I wrote this on my notes. We don't need a priest because we are now priests. We are a kingdom of priests. And the only way that that's possible, whether it's me praying, Pastor Joseph praying, or you praying with your children, your family, the only reason you're able to pray is because of that day when the veil was torn in two. Jesus is our high priest. And the passage goes on to say, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This second of miracles opens the passageway of communication with God that was not possible before. And to those that witnessed this, and we'll come back at the end of the message and we'll make a reference to those that were literally there, but don't you know the news spread around town about what happened with the temple veil. God was speaking. And what he spoke with the darkness about the evil of sin and what he spoke through the tearing of this veil of opening access for all of us to be able to freely come to him is what God was saying. This is followed by a third miracle, that of the shaking of the earth or what we would call earthquakes. Now, interestingly, I've only experienced one earthquake in my life. And guess where that was at? Cairo. Remember about a year ago, there was an earthquake through this area? And I see a lot of heads shake. You know, I was sitting at my desk. It was a Saturday, about 1230. And I actually went downstairs because right below where my desk is at is where the, the washing machine's at. And I was like, oh, you know, it's just a rant cycle. You know, it's shaking. But I'd never experienced that before. Well, it wasn't on. And then I found that there was a small earthquake. The day after I left Nicaragua on one of my mission trips, they had an earthquake. I've seen the damage. And I'm told that fear powerlessness is what you feel in an earthquake things falling off the walls you can't even stand up straight earthquakes are very powerful 20 times in the scriptures the bible references earthquakes and there's two things that are always connected with earthquakes judgment and deliverance and I'd like to show you something very, very beautiful that took place with this miracle. Let's uh, look at the book of Exodus when God gave the law. At Mount Sinai, it says the whole mountain trembled greatly. Another way of saying an earthquake. So when the law was given, the earth quaked in judgment. Because, you see, no one can live up to the law. So when Jesus came along and he taught, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, what he meant is, I'm going to live a sinless life, and then I'm going to die so you don't have to die. And notice with me, as we come to this passage in Matthew 27, the earth quaked, not in judgment, but in deliverance. 
For the law at Mount Sinai, the earth quaked. But at Mount Calvary, the earth quaked again, but it was for grace to set us free, to liberate us, and to allow us to have the freedom that we have in Christ. I could have borrowed this phrase that I'm going to uh, share with you from the Apostle Paul from Colossians because he says something very similar, but I thought I would use Ephesians since we've already gone through the book of Colossians very recently. He says this, Christ's death abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Do you know how significant that is? The law means death. We think of the law and we think of the Ten Commandments. Well, let's just add another 603 because there's 613 in total. And so far, the statistics have revealed that 0% have ever lived out the law except for Jesus. And so when the earth quaked, it was God saying, I have delivered you from the bondage of the law. The age of the law has ended. The time of grace has begun. And that leads us now to the fourth miracle that took place, verses 52 and 53, saints being resurrected. Now, usually once a week, on my bicycle ride at lunch, weather permitting, I will ride south, go across Genesee, and go over to St. Lorenz and ride my bike through the cemetery. Now, it's not morbid. It's just kind of a reminder for me that it's a quiet place. I mean, nobody bothers you in the, in the cemetery. And I like to look at the names and just realize these are real people that really lived. And occasionally I'll see somebody walking. And if I stopped and talked to those people who are walking or maybe sitting in their car, and I'd say, you know, I'm Pastor Randy up from the Bible Church. Who are you? Imagine how shocked I'd be if they said, well, well, I'm Samantha. I used to be over in that grave. Really? I think my bicycle would flop over immediately and hopefully have my helmet on. Cemeteries hold people who have passed away. They're dead. And in this passage, we have something very significant. Only the holy ones, only the saints, and only those from the Jerusalem area are raised from the dead. Now, I wanted to be real careful about this because these two verses have something in here that we need to get Right, And I actually talked to my son, who is pretty good with linguistics of Greek and Hebrew, and I just wanted to make sure that I had my ducks in a row on this and understood this right. You see, the earth quaked, and it says that it opened up the tombs. Our tombs are different than their tombs. You know, we talk about the stone being rolled away. Usually people were buried in the side of a hill. And to cover that hole, a stone would be rolled into place to shut it up. 
So the sequence here is this, from what I can understand and gather from this, and it's important to note because there's a spiritual truth that relates to what Pastor Joseph is going to speak on next Sunday. And I have no idea what his text is or particularly what he's going to do, but I do know it's going to be about the resurrection. And here's the truth. You'll notice in the text that it specifically says in verse 53, they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. So my take on it is the earth quaked and it opened up the tombs, but they didn't resurrect until after Jesus arose from the dead. And that fits with what Paul says in the book of Corinthians. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, if they had been resurrected prior to him, it would have violated a very important spiritual truth, and that is that we are only raised, uh, I think we're going to sing the song for closing. Uh, help me out, Pastor Joseph, with the words in, res in resurrected. All right, yeah, thank you. The resurrected king is resurrecting me, and that's what happened to these folks. Now, we have to understand this resurrection much like we would with Lazarus. We don't know how long they were raised from the dead, but they eventually died again. It wasn't like they get, were given heavenly bodies. But the important truth is this. Only in Jesus do we have the power, the hope of the resurrection in the future, and that is because of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that I talked with my, my son about and it's so true of, of many places in the Scripture. I said, wouldn't it have been nice if Matthew could have just given us a little more information? Like if he could have gone and interviewed one of these people. What was it like? You know, just all of a sudden, you go out and you, and you start freaking out the people that are in your family. He's, he's alive again. But we don't have that because CNN didn't exist then to be on the spot and to have their cameras there to, to capture it and we have to wonder sometimes why we don't have more information but what we do have here teaches us that important truth that only in Jesus can we have the hope of the resurrection and we conclude with miracle number five which of the five would be the greatest it's not greater than the resurrection of Christ but it is the greatest of these five, and that is this. Sinners are converted. You see, Jesus authenticated his claims to be the Son of God with miracles. When Christ died, God the Father authenticated Jesus with these miracles. The accumulative effect for those watching to have darkness for three hours, to have the temple veil torn in two. And don't you know, it wasn't that far away. Word got around pretty quick. Hey, something really rocked the temple and the, the veil is torn in half. What's up with this? And then you add to that the earthquakes and you add to that these tombs being opened up in preparation for them being raised. 
and the people were abuzz. And we, we read in the scriptures that it affected some of the people to come to belief. In verse 54, the centurion said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And you notice that there were others that were with him. I referenced earlier about these priests. You know, you can't witness things of this significance without pondering and reflecting and thinking, what does this mean? And how does it affect me? And I think one of the most beautiful verses that we find in reference to the Calvary miracles is what we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Now, keep in mind, we're only talking about a couple months because you got Pentecost, that's Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, and then you come to Acts chapter 6 just a few months, perhaps later, and we read this. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. You know, there's priests in all religions around the world. I mean, we're priests, but we're the genuine priests because we go through Christ. But what if you had all the priests of these different religions witnessing this, and, and then all of a sudden they became obedient to the faith of Jesus Christ? Awesome. Powerful. But you know, God does this as he said in John, for us to come to belief in him. You know, we talk about a biblical truth called total depravity. Now, what it doesn't mean is that we have done every sin imaginable. But what it does mean is we are fully capable of doing any sin. I had... Uh, a person that was in my church uh, up in McBain, a person that became good friends with me. And one day, just out of the blue, and I, th I asked him, I said, what, what made you even bring this up? Just out of the blue, he said, Randy, he said, uh, I just can't ever imagine you hurting somebody else. And I said, well, you, you ought to think again. Because plenty of times I have thought it. And Sometimes maybe I have done it. Murder, sexual immorality, all these things. Folks, it's in us. And it's in us by virtue of being born. That's all you have to do. Be born and breathe, and you're a sinner. You're depraved. And because of that depravity, we are blind spiritually. We are deaf spiritually and we're dead spiritually and God shows us through his shock and awe what we need to validate that Jesus is truly the son of God I want to ask something very personal for each of you the first question are you really shocked at your own sin Now, now think of all the things that you have done, the things that you might do, the things you've thought about doing, that whole depra depravity thing. 
Have you come to a point in your life where you say, truly, I am shocked at the deception of my own heart? And secondly, have you come to a place where you're in total, absolute awe that this Jesus took my place and he died there for me? These thoughts are captured in a song that we sing. The words go like this. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How many know the words that follow that in the chorus? How marvelous, how wonderful. You see, the purpose of this passage of Scripture is for us to be shocked at what happened that day, but shocked more importantly at our own sin and in awe that Jesus took our place. Father in heaven, we thank you as we look back over the recorded pages of Scripture and we see these Calvary miracles that point out significant truths about you, about who Jesus was and what he was doing, and also about us. And I pray that every person that has been under the hearing of your word this morning will, will take a, a careful examination of their heart and to make sure that there's been a time in their life when they have come to the cross and they've seen the ugliness of who they are and they've seen the awe and the splendor of such love that would die for them. And I pray that this might be the day, uh, the the leading up to the Easter season when new life could come into their life. And I pray that they would come to believe that you really are the Savior of the world. In Christ's name I pray this and asking that you would bring people to yourself. Amen.